Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. And this is episode number 60 with your hosts, Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. And Ray Herto, HRV Homes. And joining us today is our guest, Christopher Quinn from Apex Projects. Awesome, Chris. Thank you for being here today. So, Chris, Thanks we got... Yeah, no, I appreciate your time. Yeah, can, um, we, can we acknowledge our milestone today? 100,000 listens. Hey, congratulations, guys. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks. Sweet. That's awesome. 100,000 <laughs> listens is distinctly different from listeners, though. It's kind of okay. like assistant to the regional manager. <laughs> well, regional to be manager. fair, 90,000 of those was from the three of us. Right. So. And my mom does the other, <laughs> the other 10,000. So. Yeah. No, actually, Keep my, on repeat. Oh, shout out to my mother-in-law. She listens to every episode. Impressive. I don't even think my mom knows what a podcast is. <laughs> so my mom does not so, know what a podcast is. With, I agree with, with you. That, <laughs> thank you to everyone out there for who's been listening and supporting the podcast. It uh, and sharing it with friends. It it means a lot, and we appreciate you. So uh, so Chris, we got connected with you through Tim from Imperial Kitchen and Bath. We had him on a couple episodes ago, and you know he said you would be a great person to bring on to kind of chat with. He's um, our paths have crossed. I mean, I first met Tim at, at IBS a few years ago and uh, through a, a mutual friend of ours, this guy named Jobson, who's an affordable handyman down by me. And he introduced me to Tim and, and he's just one of those infectious personalities, as you guys know. Yeah. So we just kind of hit it off. And what I do in my, the high end industry that I'm in, I think is where he's trying to, push his business towards. So we just hit it off from there and have been friends ever since. So he's, he's such a great dude. And I really appreciate him introducing us to do this today. Yeah, no, it's been, it's, it's awesome. And I feel that between social media and IBS and all of these platforms, it's been such a good way for everybody in this industry to connect. It was so hard before I feel like it was all just word of mouth and it was very localized and now everything's become so nationalized and yeah i think it was I, I think it was more regional right so i know all the people in my vicinity because we work in you know new york city connecticut the gold coast of connecticut the hamptons but that's just our northeast region let's say but i didn't know too many people up in boston i didn't know people in la so now the the, the advent of social media has really opened up the the whole conversation to everybody where i talk to people that i've never would have met like brad from aft construction i never would have met him in arizona but we linked up at, at IBS in two years and we just remained friends from there. So it's great. Also, the yeah. culture that's changed is cool. Just the notion that I think everyone sort of favors collaboration over, over competition. And uh, I, that's distinct. To a point, from I think that's a, it, it's, it's an interesting term that it's one of those token terms that everybody says it. But when it really comes down to you're bidding against another builder, let's say, in your local area, yeah. it's like, yeah, we want to collaborate. But at the end of the day, I want to put food on my table, too. So I'm trying to beat you a little bit here. The nice part about the Instagram stuff and, and specifically when you go to the conventions and the, uh, the IBS stuff is that I'm not competing with any of these guys and they're not competing with me. So literally, we just get to talk shop for hours and it's great because it's like, I'm not worried about giving you angles to, to beat me on my next bid. No doubt. Yeah. I, I, try. I feel that the old, the old, guard, we talk about that, Mark, though. Sorry to cut you off. But like no, the old not. guard is very, very reserved on like, any type of collaboration, absolutely or not talking to anybody. Like the younger generation of builders and developers and everything, they're so much more open to, to collaborating and talking about what issues they're having, what challenges they're they're facing, how we can work together to kind of 
tackle some of these things. So, I mean, it's, it's such a different, I feel that the industry is shifting in that regard, which is kind of, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Because some of the, uh, the old timers around me, like we go to the networking events or pre COVID, let's say the networking events (laughs) and we all know who each other are. We may do the cordial, like, Hey, how are you doing? You staying busy kind of conversation that lasts for about, you know, 30 seconds and then go off and talk to our, (laughs) our respective parties. But the new guys, like, yeah, we can hang out yeah. for hours in this talk shop. I'm not going to call even Dan and Ray, who are my closest friends, when I'm in the middle of an acquisition, like going after a property that's and talk about where I'm pricing it and where I'm out. But I might call and say, like, hey, you just did a very similar building. What were your build costs? And and whenever those questions come my way, I just try to say yes as much as possible. Yeah. <laughs> you can be as, as vague as possible, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> so, so you're doing super high-end custom homes. That's kind of yep. your niche business, right? How was the industry fared or your, your kind of niche fared in, in the market so far? I would like say so, so our, our base is just outside of Greenwich, Connecticut. That's where our office is. So <laughs> I would say that going into COVID definitely scared everybody and, and projects definitely got shelved and halted and so on and so forth. The biggest thing that got me through COVID was our maintenance program. So we do a lot. We have a bunch of existing clients and customers that we've done, you know, uh, full houses for renovations for et cetera, et cetera. So what we really tried to do was angle it towards how can we help you during COVID? Maybe you realize now that you're home that you need an addition, you need a new playroom for the kids because they're in your living room and you don't want them in your living room. So, you know, all the things that they really were too busy to think about pre-COVID that all of a sudden became priority because now they're, they're stuck in their houses, you know, 24-7, 365. So that really helped us get through, let's say, the worst parts of COVID. I know it's, it's spiking a little more now, and hopefully with the advent of the vaccine coming, things will calm down a little bit. But the, um, the biggest thing that we've noticed, let's say, as COVID was waning, was everybody fleeing New York City and wanting to get out of the city centers and get more into the suburbs, places where they didn't have to worry about who's coming into their building, the doorman in the building, you know, so on and so forth. So we've seen a huge influx to the Westchester, Connecticut area, specifically because we're located about 30 minutes, no traffic car ride, 30 minutes train ride, let's say to Manhattan. So a ton, ton of new clientele is coming out of this now. And we're just starting to see the, uh, the we've been talking to architects for the past couple of months who've been slammed. They can't even, they, they, they're all competing over who they're hiring locally uh, via because if somebody leaves one firm, they already have a new job they're going to. It's so kind of, it's so busy right now. So the, the, the floodgates on our end are, are just starting to crack open with people who were out of the city early, got a piece of property or whatever. And now that they see it on the forefront, they want to do the renovation or the new house build whatever suits their living style. So we're just starting to see the, the pre-notions of that come down the line. And it's exciting. You know, I, I know that, that COVID really is, is awful and let's not minimize that. But the aftershocks of what are happened to our industry, let's say, I think are going to be beneficial because more people are working from home. More people do care and about their houses more because they realize that they're entertaining at home more often. So I think it's beneficial for all of us in the industry. Unless you're selling micro apartments in an urban area. Unless you're selling micro apartments in your urban areas. <laughs> yeah. That, those developers aside, uh, I, agree. <laughs> I, I think what you said about architects being slammed is interesting, though. That's a very good, you know, we call it a leading indicator, right? It's like the canary yeah. in a coal mine. So what happens with architecture's business, ours follows it, you know, six months thereafter. 
Yep, absolutely. And you can stop getting contracts and you should be nervous. Or, or Yes, exactly. Because, you know, the guys that aren't talking about being busy, you know, now and the months ahead are the ones that are like, wait, what happened? So I, I base it all on my pre-COVID relationships, let's say, that I've had with various architects and designers. Because without that network, like it was very difficult to build a network during COVID for obvious reasons. So without that pipeline to potential work, like, yeah, you can, your work bank could dry up quick and you wouldn't even realize it. How many people do you have on, on staff? We have about eight people, including myself on staff. So we, we like to keep it lean and mean. We like to service all of our clients. I mean, I personally am involved in almost every one of our projects from conception through, you know, close out through, you know, turnkey. So right. just the fact that I grew up in an industry out in the Hamptons building for a, a well-established builder out there. And he just kind of taught us that like, he, you need to be there as the face of the company. You need to be around. It can't just be somebody sitting at home trying to phone it in. Let's say you have to be in these people's faces. You have to be communicating. You have to be the ones where they feel comfortable to call me at, at any hour on the weekends, whatever, just because they're entrusting us with their house or, or whatever it may be, their apartment in the city. And they want to know that this clientele specifically wants to know that one person, i.e. myself or one of my lead guys is in charge at all times and has a pulse on the project. It's the biggest jump for people that are trying to work in the, the ultra high-end industry is that they came from a different industry before and they don't realize what these clients actually demand out of us. And it's, you know, we're slaves to them at some juncture and it's not enjoyable in that regard, but the best parts are, are the happy client at the end because that's how we get more work is through referrals. You know, yeah, so I, didn't want, I didn't want to get ahead of the, the conversation there. Uh, I know we've got probably a couple unique things to talk about, but an average client, so it sounds like you're you're in the uh, the high end areas anyway. So can yeah. you tell us like what? I mean, are you just basically doing ground up up to what's the smallest thing you do versus what's the biggest thing you do? It's funny we get asked that all the time, and we don't put a size to it. If it's a good fit, if the project's a good fit, I'll build a shed for somebody if they need it. And it's one of those things that kind of sets us, my mindset apart, is that we don't look at it as a dollars and cents part to the, the business. We more go into it of, hey, listen, we may build this guy's shed right now, but he may knock this house down in a year and want to build you know, a $10 million house behind me. So yeah, let's go figure it out. Let's do the shed and move on from there. It's a full range. So I've done all the way up from building a shed for people all the way up to, I think my biggest project was a 40,000 square foot complex. And it had indoor tennis, indoor pool, bowling alley, massage room. And then we converted a, a barn to a, a library for this private book collection. That was like a $25 million project that we did for that one client who we've done repetitive work for. So it was great. Have, have a pajama room? <laughs> it's got... It's got every room you could possibly imagine. <laughs> Have you seen these? This is a thing now. It is a thing. The pajama yeah. room. I just heard the of pajama that. room. Yes. You want to explain it, Chris? I, wait, what is? No, I'll let you. You know, I've only heard of it on the cuff, but I'll let you explain it. So I've seen these. They're like they're supposed to be rooms which guests are not typically welcome, and it is for the family. And. It is a super comfortable room with a TV. It's a lounge room. It's it's almost hidden away in the house. And uh, I think that's my understanding of a pajama room. Yeah, I think it's a room more. that they just don't care about the maid going in there all the time and the kids can just, you know, cause havoc and it doesn't matter. We call that our family room here. <laughs> 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 but guests are welcome. So I guess that's the difference. That's yeah. the difference. Yeah. 
Chris, do you handle all of the, um, will you handle all of the entitlement aspects of it if somebody wants you to do that? Or is that kind of expected at this point, just in terms of if it needs like a, a zoning relief or something like that, if it's not just a pull a permit and do the work kind of. We try to engage our local expediters to help out with the permit stuff because they can get tricky, especially in a lot of these municipalities like New York City, for instance, we do everything through expediters because you just it, there's so much levels of red tape and bureaucracy. It just doesn't pay for us to kind of stumble our way through the process. More local, let's say, of, uh, out of the city in the, uh, the suburbs, we'll try to help out and do as much as we can just because it keeps it much easier for the client. There are some land use attorneys that we will engage with if it's a complicated site and there are just uh, complications that we can't deal with without having the the actual attorneys fight it out, let's say, for lack of a better word. But yeah, we try to help out all the way through. So we're full service from obtaining permits to we've even gone to the point of bringing clients to various architects and helping them sign up with the architect and then they'll figure out the consultants from there. So we really try to make it as, as easy of a transition as possible to get these people in their houses. So $25 million, 40,000, that's like, what is it, like 600 bucks a foot? Do you guys think in terms of price per square foot on on your type of residential builds, or is that almost meaningless metric? Like, how do you even price a bowling alley? Like, Bowling alley is easy. There's too many manufacturers, just to digress on this real quick. It's AMF and Brunswick. And you call them up and they sell you two lanes, regardless of the, if it has to be shorter or not. They sell you two full lanes and all the equipment, and that cost is like 260 grand. But that's just the lanes. So that the, everything else around it was like another, I want to say 300 grand. So that was like a 600 grand. So like the equipment, like the, the, like the apparatus and the pins. No, and that's all in their number. Let's say the pin setter machine. Oh, that's an, oh. Yeah. Okay. So the pin setter machine, everything involved with the bowling alley is, comes from, let's say, Brunswick is who we worked with. That'll come in that 260 grand, but you got to provide the electrical and the room, and then you got to finish the space out. So that, that was for us on that project, that was like another 300 grand just to do that. That was involved. But just to go back to your point about the price per square foot, it's funny because that's one of those things that we often get caught in, in somewhat of a, a trap because on some of these one-off type projects, it's tough to figure out what a comparable price per square foot is for your project. So anybody can come in and say, I, I want to say, excuse me, let me backtrack. I want to say that typical builds in this area are anywhere from, let's say, 500 on the, the lower end up to 1,000 on the, on the high end per square foot. You know, and, and it ranges all throughout there. But if someone brings in a super modern build where it's, it's steel, glass, and concrete are the basic three elements, you know, those can go from a thousand square foot and up. I've done one that was $3,000 a square foot just wow. because of the complexities. And everybody wants those sleek modern details, but they don't realize that that cost is super expensive because there is no, there's no fudge factor. There is no give. It has to be, it has to be dialed in from the foundation all the way up to the roof line and yeah. everything in between. I mean, if you, you think know, of so, board crown molding, they're just there to, they were there originally to cover, cover sins. Absolutely. And that's the funny part is a lot of people don't realize that because they say, well, we don't have any panel molding. We don't have any base molding. We don't have any crown moldings. I'm like, yeah, I understand that you don't have that stuff. That's why this is so expensive. And they're like, yeah, but you don't have all those materials. And I'm like, yeah, I understand it, but I can't, I, like, I have to give this to the sub who's actually done this before that knows how to dial in your details because nothing's worse than giving them, you know, like a, a wonky wavy wall at the end of the day. And they're like, well, that doesn't look good. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not. That's not my quality level. I'm not giving you that. So that's, that's why this is so expensive. 
But yeah, so the, the price per square foot is is somewhat of a misnomer. And a lot of people do get, especially first time, either first time clients that are building and or renovating, they don't understand what you're getting for that price per square foot. The other part about that is that they don't realize that that price per square foot is just for the house. So that's just the builder's cost. They don't get the interior designers cost in that. They don't get the architectural fees in that, any of the other engineering consultants in that. So they don't, they, they just think, okay, I want to build a house for, you know, 500 bucks a square foot. And that's all in. I'm like, no, it's not, it's, it's not all in at all, actually. You, you mentioned Greenwich, Connecticut recently, uh, a few minutes ago. I think Greenwich is probably benefited more than any other community from COVID. Prior to COVID, there were articles in the Wall Street Journal about foreclosure auctions in Greenwich, Connecticut, Greenwich, yep. Connecticut hiring public relations firms because they had such an image problem. Sort of like I think some of the younger generations don't like the hood ornaments on their car. They can be wealthy, but they don't want to be ostentatious with their wealth. And nothing says Rolls Royce like Greenwich, Connecticut does. <laughs> and so for that, yep. hey, so great. I didn't know. I didn't know that. But now they're back. But now they're back. So yeah, Greenwich particularly had a huge problem. Actually, the whole state of Connecticut, let's say Greenwich being the, the most net worth, had a problem with a lot of the high, super high net worth people, residents that lived here were fleeing to the no tax states. So they're fleeing to be Florida residents or fleeing to be uh, Texas residents. And so once all that started happening, other high net worth people were like, well, wait a second, if I can do that and not have to pay state income taxes, I get to save a whole lot more. So in Florida, for instance, we had a client and they have to stay half a year plus one day in order to be a Florida resident. And then the other less than half a year they spend in Greenwich. And it's one of the ways that they circumvented the tax laws. I mean, it's been going on for years. But yeah, Greenwich has benefited huge now from the influx of people fleeing New York City. There's no question. And that is the where the lion's share of our work is in the, the next, let's say, six months to a year is going to be all being Greenwich, basically. I think there's a corollary there, Dan, right, to our market, whereby I think the South End is almost uh, replacing Beacon Hill. Beacon Hill is flat or dropping in some respects, I think, for the younger generation, because it's just seen as stodgy. It's like super rich. But it's like if I'm younger and I have done very well, I want to be in like a cooler area. And I think the South End is, is on the rise for that reason. Agree or disagree? No, I, I agree. So like Back Bay, Beacon Hill is kind of like the, like you said, like the Perry. older generational wealth. Yeah. 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 So like new money versus old money, I guess. Yeah. Slight digression. But um... <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned Florida. I know that in your modern, modern crafts and podcast, you mentioned that you were looking to potentially expand down there and kind of set up a kind of another satellite office down in Florida because a lot of your clients, as you were saying, have second homes down there and things like that. Has that materialized since then or how has that been put on hold because of COVID? What's the status? Yeah, we kind of put that, we, we kind of shelved that because of COVID for now and we're just trying to focus on servicing the clientele and in our markets. So it's, you know, expanding outside of your market is great, but it's it was a huge gamble and it's something so far away. So we were looking down in the Naples area, which is the west coast of Florida. And going from Florida to Connecticut is just not realistic. So one of us would have to, you know, we would need to set up and, and have people down there. And I just think that we have enough workflow right now to keep us busy up here that why why try to be mediocre in both places as opposed to just being really good at our base. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. That makes makes sense. So, I mean, are you allowed to talk profit margin on stuff like you that you build, or you know, what yeah, as long are, as what I don't have an NDA on the project, we can. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are so, like what are the typical expectations from a builder's standpoint on like the ultra high end? stuff from a profit margin like what do you like because typically you know it's like a gc charges their 20 percent fee and you know yep. that's kind of so how does how does it work how do you structure it on your end the same kind of way so we're set up as a gc we like to call ourselves builders just because it's a fancier name it's it's the same correlation where designers and decorators so no designer wants to be called a decorator so i'm like okay i get it i totally understand so well, it's the same way a, a, a developer doesn't want to be called a flipper or a rehabber. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we all have the negative connotations within our own respective <laughs> industries and we just try to avoid that. But the we're set up business-wise, we're set up as a GC. So it's, it's basically my favorites are cost plus, you know, cost plus contracts always work out. I think in favor for both the client and for the builder, because everything's completely transparent. I'm not trying to to I'm not trying to hold to ten dollars because that's what was in the budget and just use a cheaper sub that may not be able to actually provide you the quality that I want. So it's cost plus for us works out great just because of that and also because the client feels comfortable knowing that they get the best product for the best price that they're seeing. So in that setup, we we build in to that cost plus contract our supervision time. So we line item for supervisions, and that's all our in-house guys, our PMs and our site supers. And then at the bottom of the page, we'll put in our typical fees. So those fees range anywhere, depending on the project size, anywhere from 8 to 15% on top of the actual total budget. So it's a wide range, but it really is dependent. Like a project that's a $25 million, uh, let's say, budget, we're not going to attack it with a 15% fee. That client would shoot us. you know. So we'll come in definitely on the, the lower side, the 8% side. And it's just fair. You know, everybody at the end of the day in that regard is is making money. Everybody's happy to do the project. People are, are enthused about it. And the client's getting a good deal for it. So that's how we kind of figure out that, you know, when we gauge it, a lot of ours are, are 10% is kind of right in the middle ground. But, you know, on the bigger stuff, it's lower. On the, on the smaller stuff, it's a little bit higher just because it's the same amount of work that we have to do. And it's the same level of service that we want to provide. So we just need to charge a little more fee in order to do that on a smaller scale project. Your staff costs are covered vis-a-vis a general conditions line item. And so yeah. So this the staff costs as far as let's say project managers we charge for and supervisors, you know, site supervisors we charge for. The back of the house staff is covered under our our 10% let's say fee. So the back of the house staff being uh, my time as an executive or let's say our, our office manager's time or our bookkeeper's time, all that stuff is covered under the O&P side. So the only, the only pass-along costs that are in, built into the budget are our supers and PMs. And then this way, the client knows that you know, when we give them a, a monthly AAA pay application and they see the hours for, let's say, Will, who works for us, they see, okay, Will worked you know, these past four weeks and he worked 10 hours a week on our project and here's the cost. Okay, great. I don't have a problem with it. So it's not just like, oh, but is we're working on someone else's project, but you're charging me for his time and et cetera, et cetera. Because I think we've all faced that at some some juncture in our uh, in our careers. How often are you on site? Are you on site every day, once a week? Or I love being on site. That's where I grew up is on construction sites. So for me, it's it's enjoyable to be on site. I love seeing how things get put together, even though I've been doing this for over 20 years now. I have passion in in helping out other people create the vision together. So that's that's really my thing. I hate being in the office, but 
it's one of those things, it's a double-sided sword. So I, I have to be in here doing the the estimating, the budgeting, you know, the, the scheduling and stuff like that. I try to limit it as much as possible and just make sure that, you know, I'm on site as much as I can be just because that's where my passion lies. The admin stuff sucks. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> nobody likes sitting in front of a spreadsheet all day. Every, okay, I shouldn't say nobody. I should say Ray oh, does. Ray does. I was, that's, why, that's why I was reeling that back in. I don't like sitting in front of spreadsheets <laughs> all day long. Like, I was not built to be in an office. Let's put it that way. Oh, Ray loves his spreadsheets. Yeah. Chris, <laughs> do you build, do you build when, they're not, when they're not great? Any uh, of your own development work? I have not gotten into any personal development stuff. I I grew up in the custom home building world and I've just kind of stayed there. I mean, we just have, I, I feel from my perspective that I'm really good at that and the way that I can manage a client and coordinate with an architect and engineer. And that is just way different than development work. So I give you guys a lot of credit for doing the development stuff. I mean, in some regards, it's a little bit easier, but in the risk regard, you guys are on the hook for the whole thing until it sells. I think the riskiest developers are single family spec builders. It's just totally like, great. I can build seven units, a thousand square feet each, two bed, two bath. Terrific. I can pretty much come up with a recipe that there's a very broad buyer pool for. But when yeah. you build a mansion for someone and you fit out, you pick every tile for the 14 different bathrooms and the paint colors and everything else, you need to find that unicorn and your hold costs are obscene and you don't recover until that one buyer comes in. At least on my seven unit project, if I sell four of them or five, I've paid a lot of the nut back. That totally makes sense. We've seen that a lot down here in the in the Greenwich area and the suburbs surrounding it, where you'll have a guy that just came out of the city and maybe he got like a, a couple million dollar bonus. He's like, you know what? I want to build a spec house. It's like, okay. So he goes, pays for all that stuff. And then like, let's just call it 2007 and into 2008 where the world crashed. Now he's sitting on that spec house. A lot of them move into those spec houses because they couldn't afford them. Some of the banks repossess those spec houses. So yeah, that's the, the darker side of the development industry. Don't get me wrong. I've known a lot of guys that have made a ton of money doing spec houses, but it's just the, the risk versus reward and the gamble of the holding costs. And, and like you said, you need to find that unicorn that wants it for the price point that you need to sell it at and be able to make a profit on it. Yeah. I also feel that from your perspective, you, you're you used to and your expectation is so high that if you wanted to get into the development game or the spec bill game, you would probably get really frustrated because your budget would definitely not allow you to do no. bowling alleys and the stuff that <laughs> you're, you would want to put in that you're typically used to. Um, and the high end finishes that you're accustomed to putting in, you would people, I feel that it's, it's kind of hard to make that transition. I, I think uh, you're absolutely right. The biggest part about that is that I would need to get a whole new sub base because the guys that I work for, you know, my framers, for instance, is an easy one. They're not going to go frame a, a spec house for the same cost that they frame the custom house for. But they, they still, they're like, well, I have to pay my guys, you know, X amount of dollars an hour. So I still have to pay them. I'm like, I totally understand, but you're just not a spec framer. Like that, that's a, it's a whole different language. So all the way up and down my Rolodex, I would have to totally transform and try to find the way less expensive guys. And the other part about that is that it's just going to cause me frustration because like you're saying, I'm used to them doing it a certain way to provide a certain level of quality and a certain finish. And I think with the spec things, it's, especially around here, it's more about just how fast can you get it done and how inexpensive can you do it for me? 
I, I mean, there's obviously a, a, a wide range of builders and developers in general, right? You know, there's yeah. there's the the developer that is flipping and selling $300,000 condo. And then, but there's also developers that are building and selling $2 million condos or $5 million condos. So, you know, you're going to find that range regardless of the industry, I feel. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. Because that's even in our industry, when people say that they're doing high-end builds, you get the guys that they don't know how to do a bowling alley, let's say. And I'm not sure I'm sitting on my soapbox here, but I'm just saying that anything over a million bucks, people have kind of put the, the, the air quotes on it as being high-end. So anything with that name tag associated, like, yeah, I'm a high-end builder. It's like, okay, but there's different levels of us high-end builders within that same price point. Yeah, no, totally. As a builder, I feel like we're often basically problem solvers. And I like like to say that every every problem has a solution. And so this is a little out of left field, but have you run into a problem that didn't have a solution or the solution was incredibly expensive or set you back in a meaningful way? (laughs) Yes. The simple answer is yes. You know, I love problem solving and, and I've approached it more as I've gotten older that, you know, every house that we build and every renovation we do is just the puzzle. And we just have to figure out how to put it together correctly. One thing that burns, let's say was we were doing a house. We put a benchmark up on property. All of a sudden we, we frame the house. All of a sudden the surveyor comes back and the benchmark that one of his guys installed was three inches off, which meant that the roof ridge line was three inches off, which meant we were out of compliance with the town, which meant that we had to take the roof down and reframe the whole roof because it was a build over and all. It was a very complicated roof. So that's one of those things. And it's like you rely on the engineers to make sure that they're correct and you just never know. And so you you could check it to your your blue in the face, but it's like, yep, I'll always make sure now that we have two benchmarks on the project as opposed to just going to one benchmark on the project. And second lesson is to check your surveyor's uh, yes. insurance policy <laughs> prior to start. Yep. When you yep. mess up the location of a building, it is not just taking down drywall. <laughs> no. Goodness, we were able to easily fix that. I mean, it, it costs some money, but we were able to fix it. But yeah, to your point, if you put the foundation in and you're three feet over the setback line, like that is a huge problem. It's not easily addressed. I'll trade you one back. I had a challenge this morning. We're framing the roof on a uh, 10,000 square foot building. And okay. it's a flat roof with a series of gables of different sizes across the front of the building. And the gables are defined left and right by these 16 inch LVLs okay. that are spanning front to back. And the night before we were going to frame these, my framer asked me to dimension the roof plan from my structural drawing to give them the locations of, oh each of those LVLs. So I did it at like midnight. I gave it to him the next day. We've been working on this for like a week. And I just had this like hot flash this morning. I was like, something seems a little, let me check this. So I used Bluebeam and I overlaid the architectural mm-hmm. roof plan on top of that structural drawing. So you guys have, have uh, Zoom, so here's a little show and tell. Look, this is kind of like the plan. It's, it's too hard to see, but suffice it to say they looked different. And my heart <laughs> sank. <laughs> it's just slightly off. It was, you know, it was close. Off. But so I called, I think I called my structural engineer first, my good friend, Jeremiah. And then I called my architect and kind of put our heads together on this thing. And um, the outcome is actually that the structural drawing was taken as though you're standing in the room looking up. 
And the roof framing plan is drawn as though you're on a helicopter looking down. Yeah. He's showing the edge of the asphalt shingles with a two by 12 gable sitting on top of that LVL. So long story short, short story, they were, the LVLs were in the right spot, but it definitely caused me to, uh, you know, some panic for the better part of this morning. Well, at least you got through it though. Cause there've been some of those scenarios that like in a, and you have a good relationship with your architect and with your structural engineer, you know, sometimes when you're working with, for a custom client, let's say we go up the chain with that. And then that causes all sorts of headaches and panic and, and, you know, hysteria throughout the masses. So we have to be very careful on how we go about, you know, triple checking before we bring an issue to the architect. It's one of those things where it's just like, they're entrusting you with this amount of money for these, this size project on the reputation that we have for, for building this kind of stuff. It's like, I don't want to just go to them with a mess up. One of my biggest things that I teach my guys is like, I want you to, if there's a problem, fine. Don't come to me with just the problem. Come to me with the problem and what you think a solution would be. Then we'll go through and work through it collaboratively together to find that solution, whether it be your idea was a good one or, hey, what about if we approach it this way? But I hate it when people just bring me problems. It's, it's okay. like a, a pure, oh, it just drives me nuts. No, and then the other thing that I think I'm sort of proud of myself for in handling this is like, I think your gut reaction is just to immediately figure out who to blame. Just like yes. go on the yeah. war path. Did you work off of an outdated drawing? How could you have not coordinated? But like, what in the end, what is that going to gain you? It's just going to, you need these guys' help. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a collaboration. So we're, we're, you know, we're all team players and we don't get to the finish line by throwing somebody else under the bus and, you know, slotting somebody in to fill them in. So I, I totally agree with you. It's like, you, you have to be able to look at it almost from a thousand foot view and then kind of try to break it down from there. And the other thing is they didn't make any mistakes. So I'm really glad that I wasn't an obnoxious jerk. Well, that's good. Yeah. Cause that's what people are hating no. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to really come in guns blazing if you're the one that's doing it wrong. Please go in gently. Well, ultimately, you're the quarterback, right? You're running the team. You're kind of directing everybody and kind of coordinating all the trades. Yeah, the buck stops. And yeah, yeah, you're the one that writes the checks, right? So, I mean, ultimately, you know, while it might be someone else's fault or it could be someone else's fault, it's ultimately your responsibility. Yeah. Very true. Yeah. Hey, just going back real quick to that structural thing that you mentioned. So, I mean, we all get COIs, certificates of insurance, where we're all named as additional insured, but I've never seen anything outside of liability and, um, you know, workers' comp and, and maybe like an auto policy. You mentioned something about like checking their insurance policy in case they do something wrong on their end, like errors and omissions. Yeah. Just, you know. You got to have it. Ask your architect for an EO policy. Ask to be named as an, I don't know, actually. Well, the architect or the surveyor? I think the surveyor policy is an EO. It might be just the survey is definitely an EO. Yeah. 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 I think liability is more like someone gets hurt. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I never, no, I thought the, you were like coming, I thought you were coming through their policy looking for that thing. No. <laughs> they, mark, they mark something wrong. So I have done that though. And, and you're absolutely right. It's the, Architects have to carry liability insurance, specifically if their design, once we start building their design and if their design is flawed and nobody caught it, you know, and, and we can trace it all the way back to, oh, look, your schematic design has it, and then your actual construction drawings have it, and then it's on the permit set. Like, that's an architectural thing. And, and I mean, from my perspective, 
99% of the time, I will take care of that and work my way around it because I want a good relationship with this architect because this is going to feed me future work. So if this is the thing that says, like, gets my foot in the door on another project of his, no problem. I'll take care of it and just get it done. Because otherwise, it's just going to be one of those things where you're like, yeah, why am I going to work with that guy? He just, you know, he just charged me for a zillion dollars for something that we could have fixed easily. And one other question, I think we've talked about working with clients and that sort of thing. So like, you know, the customer is always right, right? That's the expression. But sometimes whatever a customer or a client may propose just may not work. It's not, it's almost kind of going back to that. Have you ever had a problem you couldn't solve kind of thing? But what, how do you like tell a client like, hey, this may not be the best thing, even if they're like really latched into it and you just, it's either going to be a cost thing or it's just so ridiculous to try and create. I think earlier on in my career, I was definitely nervous about approaching a client and telling them no. And I think it's one of those things where you just learn throughout as as you're doing it that like sometimes they're, I mean, you're there, we're there to be an advocate for them in a certain regard, right? Like we're all professionals in our own right. So they may want to do something. We have to be the one to tell them like, no, it's, it's a bad idea because X, Y, and Z. My biggest thing is like, don't just tell them no. Like you, you have to be able to come up with a fruitful explanation on why you think me personally, this isn't good for the house because of it doesn't fit in with the architecture or it doesn't fit in with the, the, the neighbors or, you know, being a, a style, let's say that's the issue or whatever it is. Because <laughs> if you let them just plow forward on that course and then it's done and it's built and their friends come over for that cocktail party and they're like, wow, this is really awful. You're never going to get another job from another one of their friends. And ultimately, we want more work from these other people. It's like, yes, we always try to take care of our clients and guide them in the, the approach of saying, listen, all of our professional opinions are telling you that this should not happen because of these reasons. Ultimately, it's your money. If you want to do it, we'll do it. Just heed the advice a little bit and make a, a, an informed decision. Yeah. Now, I don't want to be so negative on clients and customers and that sort of thing. So let's just go the complete opposite direction. What's something that a customer brought to you and you're like, Wow, this thing's really cool. I can't wait to build it. Like, what are a couple of those? Oh, man, I just got asked if we could do an observatory on a house. So, bas- so basically build like a turret in a room and then do a, a rotating roof with the telescope that comes out. And I was like, I've done a lot of cool stuff, indoor pools and the whole nine yards, but this is actually going to be really cool. Damn, that's very unwild, which is a Yeah, because you don't, I mean, that's a one-off, right? Like, you did, I, I've never done a house with an observatory. I haven't heard about a house with an observatory in it. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's awesome. We, we'll definitely figure out how to do that. Was this Bill Nye's house or Neil deGrasse? No, house? no, just the just a uh, financial Nye. client that that recently, because of the stock market's doing over over thirty thousand, was like, yeah, I want to put an observatory. And I'm like, no problem, we'll figure that out. No problem. Wow. Yeah, nice, good good segue, Mac Mark. Right, that observatories are underrated. Underrated. We're gonna throw you a series of terms ideas, products, and you tell us, Chris, quickly, if, if you think that they are underrated, overrated, or appropriately rated. Got it. I was waiting for this one because I was listening to a few episodes a while back and they were talking about cedar siding and I wanted to combat that one. All right, well, let's throw that to you. Cedar siding. <laughs> so cedar siding, I, I forgot who you had on, but it was a woman that you were interviewing and she was saying that cedar siding is bad at the coast. And we've been doing cedar siding. Uh, I mean, I've been doing it for 20 years. My boss was, my old boss was doing it for 30 years before that. Like cedar siding is the material you use on the coast for sure. 
If you look at any of the old houses, like on, uh, just even go down to Martha's Vineyard, like all the houses are cedar siding. Panic rooms. Which is it? A panic oh, room. Oh, a panic room. I've done those. This is a time and a place. I think for the certain client who's the nervous type of client that that, that may be appropriate, I think it's it's overkill for the the, the masses, let's say, for 95% of our clientele. Like it's it's not worthy. But in, and by not worthy, I mean, like, I, I don't think they need one, let's say. You ever work with T-studs or know what those are? I know what T-studs are. I have not worked with them. I saw them at IBS last year. I don't have a valid opinion because I haven't worked with that product yet. How about in theory, breaking the thermal barrier and then technically being, you know, more structurally sound and less prone to twisting as a regular two by four? I mean, theory, if, if, theoretically, yes, then definitely appropriate. Cost-wise, I'm not sure about the cost of them and the readily availability of them yet. Have you used Aero Barrier? I haven't used Aero Barrier, no. Right. Oh, that's a good one, yeah. That's an interesting one. So basically, they just, they at rough framing, they spray this product, no, after drywall, excuse me. They spray the product in and then they put negatively pressurize the house and it yep. stops the spray and it totally seals the house. It like sticks, it's like particles that like stick to all the yeah. In like 20 years, we'll find out how much cancer it caused. <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because a lot of houses that we do are spray foam. And we have the clients that are so pro spray foam and so against spray foam. And it's just funny to hear both sides of that argument. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, all right. I'll give you a different one. Infinity pools. Oh, love them. Underrated. Underrated. Everybody should have them. Good. Me, I agree. How about cedar cloth? Underrated. Hmm. Yep, I know it's an it's an old thing, right? Like a lot of the old houses have them. I'm sure our grandparents talked about it, having a cedar chest or cedar closet. But if yeah, my parent my parents have yeah, one in their if you can if you can nestle away, you know, what, what is a six by eight space in the house and put a cedar closet in, there's nothing better. Especially the uh, aromatic cedar. That's the the cedar that actually smells and gives off that that scent that everybody knows. The clothes that are stored in cedar closets, they just last longer, let's say. It's, it's awesome. They're awesome rooms. It's a fact that they actually yeah. do last longer. Yeah. How about uh, floor-to-ceiling windows? Underrated. So we build a ton of houses on the coast. So you're paying a premium for that property. So you want to get every inch of view space you could possibly get. Definitely. Agreed. Full marble bathrooms. Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> you say full, full, full like marble? Marble everywhere. Oh, oh full marble. The whole shower. Full marble. Full marble is awesome. Yes, underrated. I'm sorry. I thought you said faux marble. Yeah. You get this <laughs> that's what I thought. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think a, a full marble. I mean, that's what we do most of the time. So I'm just pushed in that direction just because that's our bread and butter. But just touching on the faux marble for a hot second here, I think that some of the new quartzes and the new porcelains are really going to have a dynamic shift in the industry as, as far as why would you pay $80 a square foot for a piece of Calcutta when you can do the faux Calcutta for you know $30 a square foot? I think the porcelains in particular. So Neolith or otherwise yep. uh, Porcelainosa makes a product called X-Tone, yep. which uh, comes in sheets. And you can't tell the difference. Cannot tell the difference. We did. Yeah, we just put, we just put, we just did like a book match you know, five by eight book match slabs of porcelain in a, in a shower on the back wall and people come in and they, th they think it's real. Yeah. They think it's real marble. Yeah. It's, like, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quarter inch thick. 
They changed the way that they did the the uh, the patterns. So now the patterns are looking more realistic and less yeah. repeats. And I think that was the big issue when they first came out is that the pattern repeated so frequently. Everybody's like, yeah, that's fake. It's awful. But now the patterns are so realistic. You're like, you, you can't tell. You really can't tell. Once it's installed, never tell. In contrast to wood grain, hardy plank siding or wood grain, fake anything. I always think it repeats and looks, you just look so cheesy. Yep. It's one of those things though. It's where it's a cost benefit thing. Is that do certain people care about what the siding is or do they care about spending the money on the marble? And I mean, that's one of the questions that we get all the time is should we spend the money inside or outside? And it's like, I love the way certain features look on the exterior of the house, but majority of the clients, they're like, yeah, I don't care though. That's just for my neighbors to look at. I really care about having, you know, real marble bathrooms, real marble countertops, et cetera, et cetera. What's like a- It's like spill a glass, like spill a glass of wine on it. Yeah. <laughs> Until they spill a glass of wine on it. And then comes our maintenance division, which is that we're happy to help you solve those problems. <laughs> uh, I have one. So one more I got is um, brick facades. Okay. For the right architecture. So for like a brick Georgian looks great. A brick facade on a shingle style house does not look great. So I think it's, a, it's it would be appropriate under the right circumstances. What do you pay per foot for like a brick facade in your world? That's interesting. Uh, da, 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 da. 30 to 40. It's not, it's not as expensive as you think. I think it's the last time I did one, I think it was like 13 bucks a foot for material. Mm-hmm. And then because they were using a Danish blend brick and then it's 13 bucks for material and then probably another $10 for labor. So you're at 23 bucks a square, let's say. You in the city, you're like 30 to 40. So that makes sense. Yeah. They're not that common. Like we don't do them all the time. I've done, and let's say out of 20 years, I've done two. Really? Yeah. Where you because I think it goes back to your point of, of the newer, the younger generation doesn't necessarily like that older style architecture. Yeah. Not everybody, but no. like the, the masses, let's say, are, are going more transitional, more sleek lines, clean lines, you know, mm-hmm. shingle styles, things of that nature, as opposed to the old colonials with the, the brick center mass or the, the brick Georgians and the type. I like to say more like Apple yeah. store and less like your, uh, your parents' law firm. There you go. That works. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, how many of you installed and uh, overrated, underrated movie theater or multimedia rooms, that sort of thing? I've installed a, a, a lot, let's say, but I think they're overrated these days with the advent of better technology on your TV for your bedroom and the family room TVs. You could do a movie theater room and that room could cost anywhere from 80 to 300,000 to a million dollars, let's say, depending on what you do to the room. But you're not going in there all the time. You're just going in there to watch movies. So that, you know, with the, uh, the better TVs and the streaming services that we have now, like gone are the days of needing to have Kaleidoscape, which was an old platform that the um, you could stream movies from this old platform pre-streaming, let's say. Like they would upload it automatically. We don't do a lot of those anymore now because everybody has their own Netflix account and everybody has you know every account you could possibly imagine. So I think the, the days of a, an official theater room, unless you're doing like a 15,000 square foot house or 20,000 square foot house and you have the space and you just want to make it a theater, I, I think they're overrated. That's interesting. What about what about just a room that's like soundproofed that you can go to at night and watch a movie while like your kids are sleeping so they can't hear stuff going on? Yeah, I mean we we're no? big advocates for putting 
insulation on the interior partition walls anyway. And a lot of our clients are more prone to having us upgrade, let's say, on the soundproofing materials. So we'll we'll do this stuff called LV1 rubber and we'll rubber line the walls and then we'll put in either a rock wall or a blue jean insulation in the walls. So we're really cutting down on the, uh, the sound transference, let's say, between normal rooms. So that, yeah, it, as long as the nursery isn't right above the family room, you should be totally fine to watch a movie in there and, and rock out and the baby will be okay. And soundproof your next pajama room. Or the pajama room. Pajama room. We were talking about, you know, on the lines of a pajama room, we were talking about, one of my guys and I were talking about just having a break room. And by that mean, like literally a room that you go in and it's got baseball bats and golf clubs and then an item to just destroy. So kind of like office space where they literally destroyed that printer at the end of the movie. Like have a room like that where you can go in and get all your frustrations out on whatever it is that you're breaking and just wow. keep it in there and then walk out and you're like, yeah, that was great stress relief. <laughs> awesome. I, I kind of like, I would love that. I'm telling you, the more people we talk to about idea. it, they're like, that's a great idea. I could have used one this morning. Yes. Yeah. So could have. Yeah, us too. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, uh, on that note, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Guys, thanks for having me. It was an awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. And anytime you're up in the Boston area or maybe, you know, hopefully whenever we get to see each other again on IBS or something, we get together. and Yeah, we'll definitely link up. I want to come up to Boston and bring the family up there. They've only been one time and, you know, we're we're out of towners, so we need some kind of local insight. We'll definitely link up. If people want to connect or follow you, how do they do that? You can reach me on Instagram. That's where I'm big at. So it's CMQ underscore Apex. Cool. Thanks, everybody. For well, thanks, thanks guys. Happy holidays. But I don't talk. Oh. About- Sorry, Mark. I cut you off. <laughs> Go ahead. Thank you for listening, uh, helping us push that 100,000 mark for rating and reviewing. And uh, hope to see you guys on the next one. Cheers. All right. Cheers. Cool.